Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, depending on wherever you're tuning in from. Welcome to our biggest guest panel we've had so far. It's the third time that we have Patricia on so far, but it's a, it's a first for Ryan, Todd, and Kurt. So welcome, guys. We really appreciate you guys being here. Uh, we're talking about the, the launch of your book, Unlocking Business Agility with Evidence-Based Management. How is it to release a book? Good. Not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> Why not? I think we're all still tired from take it. Take us through like the process. How long did it take to to, to actually materialize this? Ten years. And uh, it's <laughs> so uh, so there there are two phases to a book. There's the you know long period beforehand when everybody says we should write a book, and that's what a former colleague of mine said called the <laughs> fix them to get ready to get started phase. The sprint zero <laughs> of the book. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and then finally, we decided to actually get off our butts and do it. And um, that was actually pretty quick. That was about six months, um, five to six months. And, you know, it, it started really with, uh, I don't know if we actually did, you know, stickies on a virtual whiteboard, but kind of collecting together what each of us wanted to say and what we wanted the book to be. And then, you know, from that, we work out a rough chapter outline, and it takes a while to get through that. Um, there's a whole proposal process that you have to go through with a publisher. And so they, they want to have a you know, chapter outline. They want to have the audience defined. They want to have, you know, competitor books defined and a lot of that. So that basically happened before we, we got started in January. But um, once we got started, it was you know, roughly you know, one and a half chapters a month, you know, pretty, pretty hardcore cranking, cranking it out. And of course, you know, we all have um, day jobs to varying degrees. So, um, you know, usually one of us would take a a stab at fleshing out the outline that we'd agreed on. And then uh, somebody else would jump in and then somebody else would jump in on that. And, you know, we had a lot of, um, you know, one of the challenges with four people is that you don't want one, you don't want each chapter, if they're initially drafted by one person, you don't want that to be in their voice, you want it to be in sort of a a neutral, you know, four person voice. And so, you know, it took multiple passes through the drafts to to get that ironed out so that everybody felt like, yeah, I could see myself saying that. And, um, you know, uh, then get it off the publishers. So it's, it's sort of that that kind of process. It's it's not big planning up front, but it's not, um, you know, totally, you know, oh, it's the start of a sprint. What are we going to do? Um, and all that. So there's a bit of structure that we we have with the, the chapter outline. And uh, that's about the fastest I've seen anybody um, do a book. Uh, usually it's more like nine months and, that, and even nine months is pretty quick. So we were pretty good about that. Um, and, you know, I know that that meant, especially for um, 
Todd, Ryan, and, and Patricia, that, that meant a lot of um, sort of long hours, weekends, evenings, not, not so much me because my focus is pretty much on writing and content related things. So, um, but still, you know, it's, it's like we, we've got commitments to each other to get the thing done. So I don't know. Anybody else? Have any I think thoughts? there's like some annoying stuff that nobody ever really talks about. <laughs> like when people are like, Hey, write a, write like a marketing <laughs> thing. Like who's going to read it? <laughs> like yeah. stuff like that. You don't see behind the scenes. It's not, it's not just like the writing. Like I always found that stuff just to be like the writing part of it. I like, but when you have to do all that little extra stuff, it, it seems like it's like a, you know, even co coordinating like the forwards and stuff like that. Just like the, there's the little things that I think that you don't think about that go into it. Uh, I think, I think all of you handled most of that. Cause I, I I'm really bad at paperwork. <laughs> don't ask Todd to write his own. Don't ask him to write his own bio. <laughs> oh, <It's> really? Not... <laughs> no, I, <laughs> Chat GPT to the rescue. <laughs> Who is Todd Miller? Todd just wrote two chapters of the book. But he's been trying to write his bio for a year. <laughs> the um, I think I think that that's true. The actual the 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 worst part. Oh, I shouldn't say that. The most difficult part for me was the the post like getting it to production, getting it right, getting it to the editors, getting it to them the way that they wanted. But I would say, you know, other than the, the thought process and the going back and forth of the writing, I really liked the beginning when we were like, what are we going to call this? What can't we put in? And I was looking at, um, guys, I was looking at, the, at, at some of the leftover bits that we had that meant make it into the book. And there was stuff like, um, this sounds like, <laughs> how to demonize your peers and get that promotion. That was me, I think. Um, no, that was Ryan. <laughs> is, that, is that Ryan? I do think that the goal was, is not to deliver. The goal is to not get blamed. Months, the first two months. <laughs> that's Ryan. Right. had a very long career. And, <laughs> the goal is just trying to get I away with it. the first two months we were caught. just talking about how we try not to come across as cynical. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. It's like, we got to act like we enjoy this. Like, what's good? No. Oh, that's another one. How to learn to stop faking it and really enjoy agility. <laughs> sort of like the, uh, you can see how these got parched, but we we started we started off with like, what are the things we really want to say? So that's how we our, our original title of the book was the Watermelon Organization, and it's not because of anything related to farming. It's it's basically the traditional view of projects is that they're green on the outside, red on the inside, and uh, you know so we. We're, as we're thinking about you know these organizations where everything's every everything's fine everything's fine everything's fine oh f you know it it all just blows up and um, so we've run into a lot of those and those provided a lot of the uh, background for the case studies in the book and all that so I think all those ideas found their way in there just not quite as cynically phrased. Jim, I saw a huge smile on your face when Kirk was talking about the watermelon organization. What's the smile about? Well, just because this morning I was looking at a status report for a big Fortune 500 client and I saw a whole bunch of green circles and I didn't even have to say anything. They're like, yeah, look at all this BS. They're like, there's no way that all these things are green. And I'm like, yep. And then we just had another 30 minute conversation about what to do about it. And... It's, uh, yeah, I just chuckle every time I hear Watermelon Project. I find a lot of people know the, they know the symptoms, but they don't have a word for it. So maybe somebody like Kurt gives them a word for it, and then they go back to work and they start seeing watermelons everywhere. <laughs>
<laughs> is the watermelon thing, is that something that's recurring in the book? Indirectly. You know, we the reason why we dropped it from the title, well, one is that Pearson, our publisher, didn't like it. Um, and then the other reason was that we found that the metaphor, it's interesting, but it's hard to sustain that throughout all of the things that we wanted to talk about. So it worked for some things pretty well, but then very quickly we wanted to move past that into what can you actually do? So um, it is it is a fun term, and once you have that in your head, you'll never... <laughs> You'll never see that green scorecard, the green uh, blots on the scorecard the same way again. Why does it still exist, though? Well, I mean, there's 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 the solutions for it. We, I think uh, we talked about it, yeah. whether it's in the book or in a podcast. I'm starting to forget where everything's at. But if you just switch every project to red, the problem's solved, right? So there's this impetus for green. And, and these projects, they're green on day one, which I think is total nonsense. On day one, you don't know anything. Your your plan is full of assumptions. It's going the plan is going to break within twenty four to forty eight hours of starting. So just set it to red and earn your way to yellow and green. And that ends the. If you see something that's green, you know it's gone through. It's had a few deliveries. It's had some good EBM um, KVAs metrics. All those things come through just fine. Um, we're starting to see alignment with customer. The goals are, are, are coming into, into form and, you know, some good things have happened. If it's red, you're still just working through the uncertainty. And, but if you have a PMO do that, or if you do that without permission, everybody freaks out and suddenly, Oh, we're red. We're in trouble. We're red. We're going to be in a meeting. And, um, they'd rather have the illusion of, of green and, and it, and it's a hard, it's a very hard drug to, to get people off of. I, I about sorry, Kurt. The, the root cause. Like five and a half years ago, I had suggested to do a PMO that very thing, Ryan. Which is, why don't you start every project green and or red and earn your green? And I had one PM that I'll never forget. His name was Jim, too, by the way. And he's like, "That no way, uh, uh-uh, uh, never <laughs> gonna do that." And I said, "Why?" And his answer was, um intriguing and enlightening to me. I'm curious, have you guys uh, and gals had any pushback on this idea from clients? Yes. Sure. Almost got fired. Um, <laughs> I, I, def- I definitely have on two things that were, one thing is not surprising, right? When they go, hey, outcomes, goals, that they're hard. That was not surprising. The most surprising thing, and we have been thinking about EBM for, for about 10 years, um, was when I did uh, something just to just to understand, just let's just get started. Let's let's just see how employees feel. And so we did some employee satisfaction. And I think I didn't say, oh, are you happy or sad? It was if you got paid the same amount of money from somewhere else, would you leave the company? Right. Very focused question. And and I think it was. God, it was going to be more than like 60% said yes. It's got to be like 70%. It was something really like crazy. And I showed it to the CEO and uh, that person ignored it. And and that, that's, some. you know, there, there's a lot of different things that people will ignore for whatever reason. I've gotten, uh, I think similar to you, Ryan. I've gotten, Ryan, you I've almost got fired. And what you were saying, Jim, I suggested that and got, got a really visceral reaction from a PM. They were like, why would we ever do that? And I'm like, so you don't want to live in reality. 
<laughs> it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, why? No, I was I was in an executive role, and as every team and every project that was in in my portfolio, I flipped them to red. I didn't get I didn't talk to the PMO. I told my boss what I was doing. He kind of chuckled and said, "Sure." <laughs> you know, he was. I mean, I think at that point he was towards the end of his career, and he was ready to to watch the world burn a little bit too. And we flipped, and it might have been twenty to twenty five initiatives to red, and we were in meetings within twenty minutes. Like it was, it was, it's almost, you'd think we pulled the fire alarm and it, we, we didn't, we, we held our ground. We kept everything to red, but man, people were really upset that we were messing with the system. And we're like, look, we haven't learned anything yet. As soon as we learn something, we'll go yellow. As soon as we ship something, maybe once or twice, we'll go green. And what it started to do was actually put pressure on the other projects to prove that they were green as well. So our peers were furious too. Um, Let's just say pressure got back channeled and uh, we eventually had to settle on yellow, <laughs> right? Like, all right, we're yellow. But um, there was a there might have been an HR meeting along the way as well. Well, but it's interesting, isn't it? We, we persist to live a lie, right? What What is the incentive to keep living that lie? Because we're you continuously hear organizations and leadership management that we need to deliver more. We need to do better. We wouldn't need to save money, but the things that they need to do, they it's don't the same want reason to. people in the matrix to, you know, decided to take mm -hmm. the pill to stay in the matrix. It's easy. It's safer. You know, the, uh, the, the two reactions yeah. I got were similar to, I think what, what Todd was saying is the number one objection I got was why would I punch myself in the face? Because flipping something to red blew up their life. They, they got um, questions from leadership. They got called in onto the carpet. They had to answer things. They had to answer hard questions, et cetera. The, that didn't surprise me. The surprising answer I got was well, a very smug, mind you. Well, Jim, that's what the teams told me. And I said, but you know that's not true. Doesn't matter what I know. The teams told me to make it green, so I make it green. And again, that's a safety thing. That's a lack of transparency that I'm, I'm just the messenger. Don't, you know, don't be upset with me. You know what, though, it's human nature to an extent. But I mean, I, I'm thinking of a, a good friend of mine um, who the, the, the kids, you know, good family, you know, great couple, kids. And as the kids grew, grew up, the couple would say, you know, we need to do more date nights. We need to do more nights out with Ryan and his wife. And but they wouldn't do it. They got busy and they told themselves that things were fine and they let their kids dominate their lives, which um, can have some pros and cons. And they let their own hobbies dominate their lives. And by the time the kids moved or they graduated from college and they got their jobs and they found their own partners and they moved on, this couple just imploded or exploded, divorced, messy, bitterness, hard feelings. The whole time they knew because we would talk to them. They knew they were drifting. They knew they weren't putting the work in. They knew they weren't showing interest in each other. They knew that they might have been flirting too much with other people. They knew, they knew, they knew. But they they wanted that picture of, we have a great family, and everybody's happy, and our kids going to Harvard, and you know whatever it was, until the illusion just dropped. And I, and I think sometimes the illusion is so lovely, you don't want to let it go. I think sometimes dropping the illusion looks a lot like hard work and that's, and if you can avoid it for another day, some people will do that. 
Uh, and I think sometimes uh, they don't know it's an illusion, right? I think sometimes people really believe uh, the nonsense and I, and it's, you know, up to, I think data and the proper delivery, you know, a book, and I'm not saying a book like this can solve a marriage issue, but I'm saying a book like this can really dig into what's actually happening, what makes some of the realities undeniable, and then start looking at ways to actually, all right, we've got an issue. Now, what do we do? And is what we're doing actually helping? Does that make sense? I think there's two layers. I think that makes a ton of sense. There's two layers to that that is interesting in terms of human behavior is one, you want to, you choose to remain ignorant for whatever reason. There's another layer I think that's interesting is that people are ignorant to the fact of yeah. how their ignorance will affect others. So it's the, I just don't want to pay attention to this. And I'm not even thinking about how that is affecting other people, which is, which is, which is very Interesting. And that's kind of what EBM is, right? It's just, just get that information and make a decision that has a little yeah. bit more information. That, data itself or metrics in and by itself don't hold any value, right? You got to do something with it. How do you use that? Now we've made it transparent. And then what? We can look at it and state our house is on fire and then decide not to do anything. How would you move to the next step from, well, we've got, now we've got data and then what? I think it depends on what lens you're viewing it through, right? I mean, so I think even before that, if you're talking about EVM as applied to product, um, you're really thinking about the customer all the time. And so you have to then decide that and be comfortable with the fact that you really don't know what you don't know. I've made the mistake as a product owner, just falling in love with an idea and then validating that idea in conversations with customers only for that, once it got into production, not to be something that was useful to anyone. And so I think data in and of itself will help. I think we, I think we, I know we, we extensively spoke about this. I think it's in the book, Kurt. I think I remember you and I talked about this a lot. I think all of us did. I don't want to say the four of us didn't at all. Maybe it's just a conversation with Kurt that set out, but there is gut involved, right? You, you can, you could be looking at all the data and it looks great and you make a decision and it goes against that and it works out great. Um, you could also make a decision that goes against that and it doesn't work out at all. Um, I think it's just separating signal from noise. One of the chapters is really all about that. What's a signal and what's noise because you're surrounded by noise all the time. There's a lot of noisy things going on. And that's a product, that's a portfolio, that's an organizations. And so how do you really know when there's a signal and take the chance of taking action on it, right? Um, with though, knowing that even though it's a signal, it's not a guarantee, there's no guarantees, so. Well, we have a case study throughout the book called well, Weecho that we I think um, people will really like along those veins, right? It's, you know, it's based off of a similar similar company um, that you might be familiar with, but it's, you know, their CEO would say, you know, 30% of it's gut, or I don't remember the, I think it was 30% is gut and 70% is data, or maybe that's flipped, but uh, gut's part of it. And you ultimately you're making a really educated guess if you're using EBM, but what EBM is telling you is, is that guess paying off? Is that gut decision, does it look correct? Is it getting you towards your goals? Um, which in hindsight, when I think about part of my career where 
yeah, we made guesses and hunches, but we weren't really measuring. We weren't really looking at goals at all. It kind of makes me think we're flying blind. You know, hey, we're on time. We're on budget. No one's yelling at us. The features are mostly there. And uh, hey, we closed out the financials so no one can search. And so, yeah, we're good. We blessed it. We bought the cake. Everyone partied. We're done. That's really what flies in a lot of companies. Um, and as I look back on that, and this book really caused a lot of reflexive moments. I know I talked to Todd about these quite a bit. I mean, we I feel like I got lucky most of the time. It's like, wow, we were successful in spite of having the world's biggest pair of blinders on our faces. And that that really had an impact. It actually shifted my thinking quite a bit. You know, Todd would always talk about goals. I'm like, dude, why are you talking about goals? It's about the measurements. It's about no, this it's this is goals uh, all the way. You set the goals and then you figure out, are we moving towards those goals? And are those still the right goals? And we measure and measure and measure. Your hunch can be, yes, that's a good goal, but you don't know anything until you're actually, you know, taking that deeper look. And man, it, it really gets you thinking when you dig into this stuff, it, it's like, wow, we got really lucky a lot of the time. So sounds like Schrodinger's goal. Kurt, I think we, we, I think Kurt, Kurt, we've seen some companies where they're smaller, they're getting started. There's some obvious things that they can do and they just have those hunches and they turn it up and they make some decisions. And then, and then at some point it does, there's, there's no more easy things. And it, it becomes apparent that there's no goals and their luck is going to run out about how far they can stretch their cash. I mean, those things kind of, we've seen those definitely. We, we talked a lot about how most of the organizations that we've worked with, their goals suck. You know, they're, they're, you know, very output oriented. They're, you know, we need to have these features in this release. And one of the, the magical words to, to try to counter that is to start asking why, why do you need that feature? You know, what, what's, what's this release about? Who are, you know, and, and ultimately take the goals back to what outcome, what customer outcomes, especially are we trying to achieve? Um, and a lot of organizations, their strategic goals are, things like make more money or gain more market share. And it's like, well, okay, that, that's good, but that doesn't help you direct your efforts to actually achieving that. So trying to state it in terms of what EBM calls unrealized value or a satisfaction gap between current experience and desired experience is something that really helps because now you can measure that. Now you can determine, did the last release we did, did that cause the satisfaction gap to decrease? Hmm, yes, no, maybe. Um, and, and you can start steering toward that, that goal of helping the customer have a better experience. Um, but a lot of goals, you know, they're action oriented, they're output oriented, they're short term, they're focused on sort of indirect results like profit, reliability, profit, uh, uh, you know, efficiency, things like that. And all of those things are important, but they're not good goals because they can't, they're not really actionable. You can't steer towards greater profitability or let me put it this way. You can do really stupid things and still become more profitable like firing. You know, if we fired everybody in a company instantaneously, we would be immensely profitable until we're not doing any work anymore and we're not satisfying customer needs. We're not answering their questions. And now all of a sudden, you know, the company implodes. So I, I think that goal setting is a lot harder than people think it is, and they don't spend very much time getting better at it. And that carries on to, you know, they measure the wrong things. 
So if you if your goals are the, are set on the wrong things, you're going to measure the wrong things, and then you're inspecting and adapting is going to be inspecting and adapting in the wrong direction. And so it's it's a pretty critical thing, and we do start the book off with talking about goals, and then we sort of unwind uh, unwind the stack, and then we sort of build it back up again and go up, back up through product and portfolio and organization at the end. But starting with goals was intentional because it's it's really the, the place where you yeah, and I think that's where EBM succeed or start people talk about EBM, and I think on. Patricia, you and I have talked about this pretty extensively. It's really easy to get fixated on the KVAs. And in fact, when the PAL EBM course was coming out, we had a canvas on there. And in the canvas, the very first section of it was goals. And we noticed that people were just getting stuck there, right? And I had a conversation, Patricia, you know, talked about it. I'm like, every, all of our students are just getting stuck. They can't get past this goals thing. But then they just latch on the KVAs. Oh, that's easy. We can talk about the measurements. It's easy, right? which I think kind of highlights the problem with it, right? It's like Kurt, you were saying, most people have really poorly written output or activity-oriented goals. Let's be really busy and do this one thing we were told to do. And how many times we have to ask, but why are you doing it? And get to that end point of how it actually benefits the customer. And it's almost to the point where you get annoying to people when you keep asking them and asking them until you find that end point. And they're just like, well, yeah, we knew that all the time. And you're like, but you're not talking about it and there's no alignment to it at all. And to me, it really stood out when with that, uh, Patricia, I know you, you know what Canvas I'm referencing and how we had it at first. And I, I had used that in my consulting and, and, and noticed something like people just keep getting stuck here. And I think it's because we're bad at goals. I mean, just to reiterate what Kurt said, but the hope though is, and the way that we wrote the book, that's why we started with goals like Kurt was saying, that we can change that, right? Well, Todd, you just need to get the OKR certification and your goals will get will. a lot better. <laughs> I was going to rebut that and stick that in, but I think, Jim, did you did you have something you wanted to chime in with? It's not really an objection, but one of the feelings and, and statements I've heard many times it, from usually middle management up to senior leadership or the, uh, the C-suite is, you know, Jim, I, I like data. I want to look at data, put stuff on a dashboard. I like reports, but I've gotten to where I've gotten already by trusting my gut, my instincts. I'm an instinctual leader. Um, I just know. I know it when I see it. All these different idioms, if you will. So how do you respond to someone like that when EBM is bringing in some structured data, some metrics, and some more... Uh, quantitative ideas to, to the table. I think, I think there's a couple things cheeky, but like, I probably wouldn't want to work for that person. <laughs> it's not going to, how far is the company going to get? If it's just like, I've been doing this so good <laughs> and it's going to be good forever. No, it's not. Um, I think the notion that we have to remember is that the measurements, and this goes back to the goals, right? So the goals are hard. Um, we could also jam on about the OKRs and some of the things that I've seen. Um, when we were running workshops on the EBM course and stuff, and people would just, boom, we talk about goals, it's finished. It's like the class was finished. But the thing is, is that if you are not measuring your goals, then how do you know how you're going to move forward, right? So, so now we're talking about outcomes and empiricism. And if we don't measure those, then how do we know if that's the right way or not? How do we know if the goals are right or not? So 
So it's really that notion of why we have to measure certain things to give us some direction and some focus and, and some accountability. Ken Schwaber, um, Ken and our buddies, and when we were talking about the Scrum framework, um, he said one of the things that for him, I mean, evidence-based management is is his thinking, and we've we've enriched it. But it's 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 definitely, he said, I didn't think about measurement at that point and how we would know that we could find something that was valuable and inspect it and adapt it. And so that's really trying to, to kind of mash these things a little bit together. I've been the leader um, that's been in the situation where I've, I've had a manager or, or a lead kind of give me that line, right? I know it when I see it. And I just, what I, I turned to that person, I said, what is it about my leadership style that has caused you to be allergic to accountability? Because I want to solve that. Um, typically the more vague things are, the more you can blame, defend, or deflect. Um, and I think that's a human psychological thing that like, I'm not a psychiatrist. I hate it when agile coaches play them on TV. I don't think we should dabble in that, but I think we should also understand that accountability is scary. And when we bring EBM into an organization, you're shining a huge floodlight on things that may have not, may not have been talked about in a very long time things that could cause embarrassment, shame, demotion, termination, um, or at least there's the perception of that. And we got to be really careful with how this stuff is presented. The stuff has to be presented. doesn't have to be. I think a good idea of how to present this stuff is really we're seeking better ways as opposed to we're looking who to, for, we're looking for someone to blame. Um, but I, I think it's all about accountability. Oh, I know it when I see it. I know it. I don't, that way I don't have to say anything. And I can't be held to account later. And I don't want to do that because it's unsafe. Right? Mastering agility only works with organizations aligned with our values. And that's exactly why we are excited to work with our sponsor. Scrum Match is the free platform for professionals run by professionals. On Scrum Match, true Scrum Masters get hired by companies serious about the popular framework. The awesome people behind this platform have decades of experience, among them a professional scrum trainer for scrum.org. They've interviewed, trained, and coached hundreds of like-minded people, and they use this exact experience to make you stand out from the crowd and help you get in touch with companies looking for true scrum masters. So go to scrummatch.com and sprint to your dream job. One of, one of the things that's... Um a problem is that those people who have the, the gut feeling that they've been successful, um, usually product releases are composed of lots of different ideas, um, especially if they don't release very frequently. Um, and there's a fair amount of empirical data that suggests that, you know, something like, I mean, the, the model that I like the best is there's some data that came out of Microsoft that a guy named Ronnie Kohabi did over a, pretty long period, 10 year period. And they measured, you know, basically the effectiveness of an idea and they took it all the way to, did it improve the outcome that we were looking to improve or did it not? And so what they found, and this has been corroborated at, you know, some other places like Google that, you know, a third of the ideas produced a positive result. A third of the ideas didn't do anything. And a third of the ideas made things worse. So what that says is that two thirds of the ideas that you're going that you come up with are potentially uh, of no value or worse, of negative value. 
So the problem with big releases, first of all, the problem with big releases is there's a big mixture of stuff in there. So you could say, yeah, you know, you could ask a customer, did you like the last release? Yeah, I like the last release. There were a few things in there that I liked. Did you like everything in the last release? No. Um, and so if you're not measuring the effectiveness of the ideas in relatively short in increments and intervals, then you're not really getting a picture of whether the ideas are valuable or not. The second problem is sort of confirmation bias. And I, I was looking in the chat and, you know, when, when you, when a manager asks their employees, how do you think I'm doing? What do you think the answer is going to be? I think you're doing a great job because their compensation is dependent upon that. When you have, like Todd's example, when you have an anecdotal conversation with a customer, you're there, the customer's there, they don't want to embarrass you. So they usually give you positive feedback. And, you know, you have to get past the subjective responses in order to see how you're doing. So the people who feel that, you know, my gut decisions have been good are usually not really measuring the result. They're, they're, they're sort of, their gut feeling is that they're doing great and they don't look at any data to ever tell them that they might not be great. And so that confirmation bias ends up being a really important thing to overcome in this, that you, you have to, uh, and I think um, one of you maybe, yeah, Jim, you said that, you know, all it takes is one person to work differently and, and get different results, better results by being more transparent. And other people tend to go, oh, wow, that's interesting. You know, we've, we've never seen that before. Well, you weren't asking the questions, but um, so I, I think that it's, you know, it, it does take somebody sort of stepping up, doing things a different way. And then it opens other people's eyes to that, you know, flying blind and well, hoping and the best isn't really. I think bad. that's a good segue to a question that we got from Ali in the chat. Like sometimes the people in teams see the measurement as a threat or think it moves them uh, from the comfort zone. As a leader, how can we give this safe feeling to the teams when we're talking about goal measurement? Like what's your usual go-to? If any. I like, a, I like to start with a phrase. And then I'll, I'll let the other people speak as I talked a lot a minute ago. Um, so the phrase that I encountered you know, probably 20 years ago from a manager that I had was that the facts are friendly. Fact, facts are always your friend, even if they tell you things that you don't, maybe even especially if they tell you things that you don't really want to hear, because then you can take some sort of action on it. And so, um, you know, the most interesting thing that a manager can do if you're getting bad news is... Um, and, and Ryan's got a story about this, or maybe Todd too, that, but, you know, it's to go, oh, that's interesting. You know, tell me more. Um, and, you know, say, well, yeah. Or, uh, you know, Ryan's story, we were on a podcast the other day and, and he shared a story about somebody's response to bad news was great. You know, that, that's great news, you know, because it tells us that something that we were doing isn't right and we need to make a change. And, and it's better to know that rather than investing tons of effort and stuff. So anyway, I'd, I'd say start off with facts are friendly, you're great, or, you know, that's interesting. And then, you know, open up to, to new ways of looking at things. I think it's also having conversation about why those measurements matter, right? So there's, there's stuff out there about no employee is going to believe that that is a fair metric, that, that that is a valid metric unless they can personally influence it, right? So I think that's why there's this importance, again, around the outcomes of goals and how they relate to the key value areas and how we use that as information, not to, you know, high five or slap you in the head kind of thing. 
Uh, facts are friendly. I like that, Kurt. Uh, but it's really hard to not be for many people to not take them personal, right? So how do you create such an environment where data or any other kind of metrics or any objective information is there to make the whole better and not to put you I down think. as a person? Because especially moving from traditional management to more of a, uh, a proper agile leadership where psychological safety is increasingly more important, how do you move I think the needle? When it comes down to it, when you think about an individual, when I think about myself, I think about myself as a developer that there's this false notion that you can measure the productivity of a knowledge worker. And so all the measurements that are be, that have traditionally stuck, even in agile environments, surround around how productive is this team? You know, uh, one, of the, one of the things I like to say is just because you do something like start using Scrum doesn't mean everybody types faster, right? That's not the way that reality works. And when you have conversations about some of these new measurements and the way that they 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 help to to to, to talk about your goals, it's it's a lot less um, scary when you're maybe looking at things that are keeping your team from being effective, or trying to understand how long it's taking you to learn um, when you put something into production and whether a customer is using it or not. The reality is a lot of the customers that we still talk to today, developers have zero connection to a customer. They have no idea what they do and what they build and how that impacts the day-to-day -day customer experience. And we're sorely missing that. The alignment through goals should really help that. Uh, but we were, Ryan and I were just at um, a client's the other week and we sat there with a developer and we said, so you built this functionality, who did it benefit? And they had no idea. They said, well, it's going to help us. It's going to help us become more profitable. How many developers in their 20s care about the company making money? Zero. Unless, unless it's like a startup, right? Yeah. Which Trish, you've been a part of a ton of them. And maybe you have some skin in the game on it, right? Maybe if you're more profitable, your paycheck increases. Other than that, they could care less. They just see the, the sea levels pulling up in their $300,000 car, right? That doesn't... That they, they basically have uh, uh, that in college loans, right? So I, I, I think that we're moving away from these like nonsensical activity oriented, trying to measure the productivity of something like a coder to let's be a little bit more in reality. Let's see the quality, see our impact on our customers. That's the conversation that I'd rather have, right? And, and, and most people uh, won't have as bad a reaction to that than say something like, Oh, this thing called velocity, team performance measurement, increase it, right? Which we all know to be complete and utter BS. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, I, I think this this is just a, a different way uh, of, of viewing things and actually getting facts from observations rather than subjective, nonsensical uh, measurements, right? I'm curious because we have a little bit of an audience here. Um, I'm curious how many of your developers are actually in touch with your actual users and customers. So if there's anyone who is in touch with their customers, drop it in the chat. Jim, you want to add as well? Uh, no, I mean, I, there, there's just so much rattling around in my brain based on the comments from the panel. Um, one of the things when Todd was just talking that came to mind is it's my observation that Measuring the bottom of an org chart hierarchy is easy and safe, but EBM starts to put some quantifiable and objective measures around 
higher levels of that typical org chart. And that's kind of scary because those are people who are normally the ones doing the measurement of others and, you know, measuring story points per developer. Well, that's about other people. But when you start to say, how are you spending your $5 million budget? What have you produced? What value have you produced? How much risk have you removed, et cetera? That's like a mirror. You know, that's that transparency that Ryan and others were talking about earlier, I think. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. You know, Jim, I'm optimistic. Um, first of all, I agree with you. The mirror is scary. Uh, but as Todd said, we were with a client a few weeks back and up to their um, CTO level, uh, he was excited about the information, uh, willing to learn about what could be better, completely open about not having all the answers and uh, was eager to see what could be done. Right. Is that a fair accounting of it, Todd? And I and and now he might be a unicorn and we might be in a lucky situation, but I'm I think we're seeing more and more of that now as opposed to 10 to 15 years ago. Um, And so I'm kind of optimistic. You know, I still think the mirror is scary, but it's I still think it's also how that mirror is used. If that mirror is used to show the person and then to break it over their face, there's going to be a problem. Um, but if the mirror is held up and said, by the way, you have five options here to try. And here's a few, I mean, there's, here's a few hunches that we think could be good. Here's some data we'll use to, to figure that out. And here's five more choices down the road that we could make. Like if we're creating, look, I've always said in, in our courses, on our, in our podcasts, in our keynotes, you adopt an agile framework or methodology and pick, pick your favorite to create the opportunity to make new and better decisions repeatedly. Right. And so when I'm in leadership positions, I don't want lock in. I want to make new and better decisions over and over and over and over and over again. EBM does that. What that means is sometimes I'm going to be wrong. Now, something that Todd and I have started doing in classes is, all right, who's never been wrong before in their lives? And they kind of chuckle a bit. Right. Who, who's been wrong today? Every day, if you actually reflect on it, you could find something that you were wrong about a decision you made, a turn you took, an assumption that you were considering, you are wrong every day, all day, constantly, but you make it a correction. You're, you're, I, I really think when I, um, when I think about my life, and maybe this just says something about me, um, I think about it as Google Maps. It's like recalculating, recalculating, recalculate. It's, it's constant. So let's drop the illusion of perfection. We're all we're all kind of bumbling fools on this big rock going, you know, screaming around the universe, trying to do a good thing and just embrace the fact that we're wrong a lot. And a framework like this that can help us be right a little bit more often or at least help us directionally is a huge advantage. Right. If you embrace that and use it well, you are ahead of almost everyone else on the planet who's too proud or, or whose ego won't allow them to admit they're wrong frequently. I love that. And that makes me think of the mirror that we were just talking about, right? Now, from our consulting perspective, because people who are listening to this podcast often are consultants themselves as well, how long does it take you typically in any kind of consultancy gig to admit that you're wrong, that you weren't leading people in the way that you should be leading them or the data proves that uh, you've been doing something different than you should have been doing. How long does so it take to make it wrong? It's interesting. You say consulting agencies, Sander, and I think that that is part of the problem. 
Uh, I think that a lot of con consulting agencies and the bigger they get, the more this propagates itself throughout the organization is that you're a consultant to a certain degree, but you're not supposed to air dirty laundry. And so I think in a lot of these consulting agencies, exactly. you're, you're, you're almost pressed into hiding the bad stuff because you don't keep clients by just talking about the bad stuff all the time. You have to sugarcoat it. I can't tell you how many times I was asked to do that and told I can't be as direct as I, as I want to be. You can't be as direct. You can't air all the dirty laundry out. And I wonder if that's part of the problem, right? That we have organizations that are actually vendors within some of these big organizations, whether that be consulting or whether they're tied to a particular product they're getting from the vendor. And to some degree, it, they're being held hostage by it and they don't even know it. And then you get a fancy report that, you know, shines everything up and makes everything look good with a little bit of advice in there. But I, I, I wonder if there's, there, there's a problem with that um, overall. I think it almost organizations almost expect consultants to say whatever management or leadership wants to hear based on the hourly rate that they that they charge it right because I've seen a lot of very low end uh, on the on the on the paycheck scrum masters that say the exact right things but they never get empowered or the actual listening ear that they should get while organizations like McKinsey or Accenture or whatever you have they charge $300 an hour and they are expected automatically to be right because they have such a high hour rate. Well, then what does that do to the transparency in such an organization? Sandra, I think scrum masters and agile coaches ought to step back and think about what you just said very, very carefully. You know, if they're offering, oh, everything's fine, everything's great, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you everything's bad. But, well, then why are they there? They're useless. They should be let go. Right. I know that's kind of harsh giving a lot of the layoffs happening, but if you're there just saying what everyone wants to hear, what you're communicating back to management, whether you intend to or not, is that everything's fine. My job is done. Right. There's something that we, we haven't talked about. We don't talk about much. It's, it's something some years ago, I wrote um, a blog about this and the title was status, the invisible third third rail in agile transformations. And the idea is that if you're in an organization where what matters is basically the status of individuals, especially management, it's going to be very difficult to change anything because they just want to make themselves look good. And so this is why the goals thing ends up being important is because if if the goal is to make management look good, or to reward them with status or money or other things, then they're not going, going to want to have things be transparent. They're going to want to make themselves look as good as possible. And you're never going to see any change. Um, on the other hand, if you can open up and be, become transparent about the goals and get them focused on customer value, and then essentially, I mean, status, status exists whether you want, want it or not. We all, have, we all seek it to some degree, we're social animals. And but if you can get the goals to focus on customer value, then your in a sense your status and in in, or standing in the organization becomes derived from what value did you provide to customers. So if a, a team is really good at responding to feedback from customers and providing greater value to them, then their standing gets elevated. And 
Um, same thing with anybody else in the organization. So, so that's a, a positive shift, but you, you've got to, in a sense, intercept the, the, the um, goals first in order to, to get that to work. Because otherwise, you know, the traditional organization, you've got some, well, uh, 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 something that I ran into is that teams started measuring the value they delivered to customers. And what they found is that, you know, some of the features that senior executives had argued for in that release were not valuable at all. They didn't get used or they got used a little bit. And something else that maybe some lowly engineer decided to put in, you know, was hugely valuable. Well, you know, the 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 manager just above that team squashed that team's use of they said don't measure that anymore because basically it was making some executives look bad and feel uncomfortable. So in that kind of organization, it's going to be very difficult for you to embrace transparency. But if you can somehow get them to embrace the idea that facts are friendly because you know what, if we're not providing value to customers, this company isn't going to exist for very long. Uh, the, um, sort of, the, go ahead. the perspective on consultant, well, first of all, the, the status as a third rail and the power conversation, I love, we've done that a ton, especially around the agile transformation. But the, the thing about consultancies and, you know, external agile coaches, that's interesting is, um, so I've, I've been at Scrum for 10 years, was at forced research before that, right? Um, and so there was a lot of times where we're just the outside coming in. And I remember talking about EBM with um, with some con consultants and just saying, hey, this is a really great way actually to show your customers that you have skin in the game, right? Get lined in, show them what value you're actually delivering. And, and, and then when you leave, um, it won't be a mess for them, right? So it's kind of like do no harm. And that never, ever worked, the vendors. There was only one time that um, a company tried, and they were actually, um, they're in South America, so they were doing, they had some work outsourced to them. And then what they found out was that their clients were really getting unhappy because they were, they were delivering um, product with so much bugs. And so they started to correlate, like, current value, at least, with what they were trying to do, which was help them in time to market and A to I. Um, and that was the only time that they started to deepen their relationship with 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 their clients. So I think that that's a that's a that's an interesting thing for a cus for a company to say. I want to hold my consultants accountable and get some value there, and also for the consultants to say, "Hey, I'm not here to just you know take your five million dollars." You know, there's a, a a quote. There's a concept in one of Jerry Weinberg's books, and I'm trying to remember. If it's Secrets of Consulting or Are Your Lights On, which, by the way, if you haven't read those two books and you're out there working in this field, you're missing out. Check those out. But one of the ideas that he puts out is um, if you're consulting, especially, make sure you're solving the problem that you're being asked to solve and nothing more. And so I think that can help. Um, I think it allows you to be bold and honest within the scope you've been assigned to. But it also reminds you that you're not to go outside that purview without going into uncharted, risky waters, right? I think that's helpful too. Within the scope of your purview, EBM, go at it. Be honest, tell the truth. But if you notice something off to the side in a problem that you've not been asked to solve, that might be a back channel conversation. That might be a one-on-one, -on -one, but that's not a public thing. And there's some, some, tac there's some tactics there that are really important. And I think uh, Weinberg, in his secrets of consulting especially, kind of has a, I think he's got the right ideas in there for a framework like EBM to actually be safe to discuss, or at least safer to discuss, 
uh, in an organization. But that was one of the ideas that popped in. And as I was listening to the conversation go, I thought, no, that's the make sure you're solving the problem that you're being asked to solve. And I thought that was just one of those obvious, but also complex things. Just one of many that Jerry put out into the world before he left. So how often do you reiterate the, or the, the assignment that you've been set initially? Like, do you on a frequent basis check in? Like, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I see. And this is what I think we should be doing. I would, like those are vastly different from what you get asked by an organization versus what you actually should be doing. Right. I think you should be aligned regularly. Like I, I'll tell you, I, I love taking things back to personal relationships because I think that's where people can really understand the concepts. And I, my wife and I talk about those things regularly. <laughs> what is it that I should be doing? What is it that you're expecting me to do? You know, and, and just making sure that there's alignment there because if there's not, that's where <clears throat> surprise, hurt, and ultimately uh, confrontation comes in, right? I think having done a lot of consulting in my life, I see my- that's one thing to keep in mind and one thing I've absolutely got lost in is that you're finding other problems. And oftentimes people are hiring you for a particular problem, but that's not the thing that's on fire, right? That's not the thing... That's not the thing that they really needed. Like we're hiring you to help us, you know, use scrum here, but that's really not the root of what they're trying to solve. So I think it's a really important thing to constantly ask and reset expectations to see if what they're paying you for is actually what you're solving because it's okay. It may not be right. And I think Trish, you're putting some, some stuff into chat here too, that like, that's another thing that you have to base on based on your experience and instinct you can easily make it fit a narrative. And so that I think that's a thing that we all talked about in the book. And Patricia, you know, I've talked about this quite a bit is it's really easy to influence data to go along with your narrative rather than recreate a narrative based off of what you're seeing with data. Right. And so I think that's a, that, that's a, that's something that we fall into a lot. I think consultants fall into that. I think leadership falls into that. I think we all fall into that. I, I mean, we definitely, <laughs> oh, I gained five pounds. It's just water. It's like that. But that's data too. <laughs> Jim, you mentioned MacGyver in the chat, like a quick uh, fireside chat. Do you think we should be looking for more organizational MacGyvers? I mean, MacGyver is one of the ultimate problem solvers, right? Like he, he has urgency normally and does what's, what he's capable of doing with the tools at hand. And, um, I think we all should be MacGyvers, but <laughs> if every single day was like that and we're trying to like put a, a string and a paper clip and a potato together to, to save the town, I don't know that that's very sustainable. That that's entertainment. And, you know, that's kind of the point that I put in the chat is, you know, the media in all of its aspects of, you know, books, TV, movies, and all that, everything seems to reinforce this gut feeling thing. Like whether you watch this, the movie about the birth of Spotify or the, um, the ones that don't end well, like the Blackberry movie or a movie about Steve jobs or something is, I think we put, it's very good for screens and eyeballs on Netflix to uh, show the gut instinct thing of, of instinctual leaders and, and things. But you know, pouring over spreadsheets doesn't make for good TV. Uh, looking at dashboards and, and implementing EBM and some of these other metrics doesn't make good TV. But I'm sure all of those people that have had significant success in the real world outside of just TV used 
data and, you know, a subjective type of things and instincts. And I'm just curious if, if anyone, like, because I assume the panel did a lot of research and they're, they're much smarter than I am around this topic of EBM, it, you know, if there, if there's an opinion on that, um, as far as this decision making and the biases and, and the, the, the patterns that people might follow in the world. Yeah. So, so I, I think that you know, we've been using a language so far that has sort of slanted toward data analytics. And I don't think that's, that's not the essence of what we're talking about. It's not, it's not people looking at data and trying to decide what they should decide. Actually, it's, it's actually EBM is an application of the scientific method. So you have a goal, you have something that you want to achieve. You have a theory or an idea about what you could do to move towards that goal. So you frame an experiment in order to test that idea. You, you find a way to quickly run it. You run it, you look at, at the data and the data that you're looking at is completely contextual to that experiment. It's not sort of you know, looking at, at sort of the data analytics problem, which basically is kind of, let, let's sort around in the data and see if there's anything interesting or useful. And, and so if you look at, at the world today, um, you know, all of the technology that surrounds us, all of the medicine, all of virtually everything in modern life was created by that scientific method. It's basically by people having an idea and then testing it and then iterating on that. And that's, that's really at the essence of Scrum as well. So I think that um, it's not data in the abstract. And that's one of the reasons why I don't, I'm, I'm not a big fan of collecting a standard set of metrics and then just sort of reviewing that over time, because I think everything is, is contextually dependent. And it's really, you know, what are we trying to achieve right now? And, uh, you know, boiling it down to a scrum team, it's like, what's our sprint goal? You know, what things do we need to do to achieve that sprint goal? They, they do it and then, you know, they measure to see, did we achieve the sprint goal? Yeah. Um, did we find out some interesting things, other things? Yeah, we, you know, some of that too. Um, and then use that to form your next sprint goal and you, you keep doing that. And so I, I think that, um, you know, the idea of having a standard dashboard that you're going to, you know, put up for all teams and you're going to look at that and decide, you know, which teams are doing better and which teams are doing worse. That's, that's a really dangerous idea. Um, and it, 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 it devolves very quickly into judging people and, you know, assigning performance, um, sort of evaluations around them. Uh, instead it's better to say, okay, so what, what's, what's the next question that we need to ask to get us to closer to our goal? And how do we, how do we run that experiment and what kind of data do we need to, to prove or disprove the experiment? And so that's how I look at it. Um, it's not really a data analytics thing, um, or a dashboarding thing or a measurement thing. It's, it's an experiment thing that thing. something that was bothering me. Cause as you know, I, I love the scientific method. I think Kurt lays out a great way to look at it. This, this over-reliance on gut. And I knew we wrote about it. I knew that there were some pieces in here and we have a whole section. Todd was right in the separating signal from noise. We talk about bias and it's actually the overconfidence bias. It's actually an anti-pattern. Right. It's actually like a, 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 a not such a great thing to um, overestimate their intuition or ability um, in, in the face of data facts. And 
and and ideas. And it, uh, I mean, we actually write about confirmation bias, anchoring bias, availability bias, that overconfidence bias, groupthink, sunk cost fallacy. We really try to lay these out so that people can kind of, you know, if one or two leaders read this and go, "Ooh, I might be stuck in groupthink right now," it was worth writing the book. You know, if we can start breaking some of the the chains of these um, these biases that just anchor you know, great organizations and hold them back, you know, but, uh, I, I, it's a conversation I was also having with my, my brother, he's a lawyer. And I was, saw this study that came out of, I think Ramsey, where, um, they were saying that lawyers and doctors suffer from one of the worst biases possible. The, it's a transference bias where they believe that because they have a specialization in medicine or in law, that they're geniuses at finance or they're geniuses at, you know, something else. And I, and I think a lot of executives fall prey to that too. Like when I was coming up through the ranks, I was a good developer and I understand deliver and I understood delivery at that time. I didn't necessarily understand annuities <laughs> or other financial. I mean, I went and got business degrees to solve that gap, but I would say, well, because I understand tech, I'm a smart person. And that means I understand these seven other things too, which is just stupid. Like I'm, I'm smart in an area and, and I can say pretty things in other areas to sound competent. That's about, that is the human experience in a nutshell, right? Um, Sounds T-shaped. What's that? Sounds T-shaped. Yeah. I, and, and that's, that's like probably the, the, that's probably too much truth in, in one soundbite, but I, the data saves us from ourselves is how I looked at it when I was in an executive role. It's saving me from my own stupidity, my own ego, my own bias, and it's allowing me to make a better decision frequently. And if you can buy that, uh, EBM is going to be a wonderful experience for you. If everything I just said, you are revolted and you're upset, um, you've got some growth and learning and thinking to do before EBM is going to be uh, beneficial to you. Is that fair? Did I just kill our book sales? (laughs) <laughs> we'll fi- find out looking at the data right, right. i have a hunch that no, we'll be I, okay i think so too no i think it's the harshness that we need more of and i think we're trying to sugarcoat way too many things and we try to live in an instagram reality way too much uh, but so so i really like the rawness of that answer hey looking at the time I went, there are a couple of questions i still want to tackle and the first one of the last questions is on the first parts of your book it's about finding purpose how would you describe the purpose of your book? Can we just feed in all the things we just said to chat T- GPT and summarize it? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, Sander, by the like, purpose? What is it of that you book? want to achieve with it? So, I mean, there there is a reason that you write this book, and it starts with purpose. Like, what, if you would sum everything up mm. into a single sentence, what would it be? I am one of the things, and I think this kind of aligns with something Ryan, you've said previously. So, so Ken Schreiber, co-creator of Scrum, when I met him 11 years ago, he was working on something called SIF, Continuous Improvement Framework, and he was thinking about enterprise Scrum. And he had these ideas about evidence-based management, working with Ken and several other people, including Ryan and Todd, um, on them. And one of the things we wanted to do was, is this viable? Can we get these ideas out there so people can start learning in a, in a class? And then I think the book is a great way to get it out to the masses. 
Um, so, so one purpose is to, to help him have that vehicle. Um, and the other purpose is just to shake people a little bit up and say, Hey, can we start to think about these things differently? Like I was just teaching some graduate students, um, at a business school this week. And I truly think that this is this, this for me is part of, um, I don't want to say leadership in terms of a management way, but this is the future of leadership. This is the future way we need to lead, right? This way of thinking, this way of being humble, being able to accept feedback, thinking, inspecting, adapting. And it's really, um, we could say evidence-based leadership. We could say empirically, um, empir leading empirically. Those kinds of things is what I think is, is the future is all about. Any additions of the other gentlemen? I, the purpose, right? Um, this is how honest I've already been too honest. Um, I think the, uh, for, for me, and I won't speak for everyone else for me being involved with this book. Uh, I think EBM is an idea that transcends framework and methodology. I think you could use EBM on a waterfall phase gated, um, effort and get a lot of benefit. You know, I, I think this is the next good idea in the world. And I think it's amazing that Ken likely has a lightning strike twice. Scrum literally changed the world. It changed the way we work. You can't deny it. I think EBM has that same potential. Um, and I think, you know, with Ken's inception and Kurt and Patricia's um, stewardship and, and Todd's implementation over the past 10 or so years, it's, it's, it's chugged along, but I think the world is primed for truth. I think the, the world is primed for evidence, uh, especially in a world where misinformation and disinformation seems to rule the day. Um, and I think this could be the next thing. And it, and it could actually bring sanity to a lot of things we're doing. You know, Todd and I talk a lot about legacy. We talk a lot about are the things we do, the, the things that we do meaningful? Um, did we spend our lives working on something that mattered? And I think EBM can potentially help us answer that. But ultimately, is Agile working? It's something that keeps us up at night. Todd and I talk about that a lot. I know Trish and Kurt and I have talked about that too. I think a framework like EBM has the potential to guide us towards whether or not what we're doing makes sense. And we have not had that up to this point. And it's a huge gap that, uh, that I hope through this book, that gap uh, starts getting smaller. I like the, uh, the part of bringing sanity to work as well. Like I think that's a, uh, it makes me think of common sense where common sense is one of the least common things these days and bringing evidence-based management into the, into more organizations. I think that's going to help tremendously. Well, the data will show, right? <laughs> exactly. Hey, one of the things that we're, that we told our audience to do is to give away the book to one of our audience members. We didn't think of any questions yet because it was a, a, a last minute like kind of idea. Um, what do you think would be a fair way to give away this book to one of our audience members? <sighs> Whoever commits to reading it and leaving a review on Amazon within a month, who can do that? Right. Is that, so that's not going to be one person. So if all of them do it, all of them will get a book. How many are on here? Five, six, 10, something like that. 
but with the key with the, with the addition that they have to mention that they put this in or they heard this on the mastering agility audience because then we know how to filter uh, sander i'll fair? cover five i'll cover five and All good right. reads can count five, good reads can count Yuval, hey, Yuval, nice that you're here. Anyway, um, so summing, summing that up, leave a good review or leave a review, depending on if it's good or not. Uh, on either Amazon, Goodreads, make sure to tag us, Mastering Agility, in there, uh, and then we'll get you a book, the first five. Jim. Ryan Ripley, will <laughs> you sign them? I'm not mailing them to Europe. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to pay for them to go to Sander and he can distribute. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Just, just let me know, then I'll I'll get those yep, covered. But I'll we'll, we'll cover we'll cover five. I think I think to um, to put some urgency on that. Why don't you just say the first five to do that? There you go. Get a book. That makes sense. Any last questions from your side, Jim? I have one last one that has nothing to do with this topic. No. Uh, go ahead, Trish. Have you been to the office? Because I've used your office last week, and I left you a message. <laughs> I am actually going to get off this podcast and drive to the <laughs> office. <laughs> but and 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 depending on um, what is in my office, I will be seeing you in 24, like 36 that. hours. Yeah. And we'll uh, have lunch in on Wednesday, so that's going to be in forty-eight hours or lunch dinner. Sorry. Uh, yes. No, no you said dinner. dinner. I won't dinner. be there. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. This was lovely again. Audience, thank you very much for being here. Appreciate the, the side chat as well. I'll export it, make sure that's available because I think there was a good discussion going on there uh, as well. Thank you guys for being here. I really love the book and I'm pretty sure our audience will too. And I think this, this whole discussion has been super insightful to most people in here. Uh, so again, we would love to hear reviews on the book. And if you have any feedback on the, on the whole discussion, let us know as well. Thank you very much for being here, guys. Thanks. Thank you. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility Podcast.